such a great time to gather together middle of the week and sing with you, and it's definitely a highlight of my week to be together. I'm glad to be back here on Thursdays, and uh, just curious, how many of you is this, this is your first time on a Thursday night? Okay, a few of you. Great, well, welcome. Um, my name is Clay. If I haven't met you, I uh, would love to. Uh, we gather on Thursdays as sort of a, uh, just a midweek time to gather as a college and career ministry, and um, our goal is just to build each other up in the scriptures. We obviously love to sing together and um, uh, submit to Christ's scriptures together, and, uh, but this, this time's open-ended, so when we finish up the teaching, we've got desserts and things for you afterwards. And would love to just stick, stick around and, and linger a bit, give you some time to interact and um, meet us if we don't know you. And uh, speaking of new folks, I hear there's some folks from Danville here. Yeah, oh, over here. Okay, so you made it easy for us. You sat right over here. So I want all of our group to look over here <laughs> and see these folks from Danville. They're from a church um, that we met at a devoted conference in um, we've been in correspondence with them uh, over the last few weeks about coming out here and fellowshipping together and maybe getting our ministries together at some level. So make sure that you give them a nice warm welcome uh, after this, okay? We agree? Yeah. All right, go meet them and say, say thanks for coming. Um, while we're doing introductions here, I'd uh, just like to keep before you that we have, it's not just Rich and I and Mary, my wife, and Christy on our leadership team. We have a, we have a large group of leaders here um, in Boundless, and part of, the, part of the reason we like to have it open-ended after Thursdays is so you can meet these leaders, um, and so they can invest in your lives. So I want to just quickly uh, introduce them. You obviously know my wife, Mary, so raise your hand. Say hi. Do a twirl. Just kidding. I want to embarrass you. Um, Rich and Christy, obviously. Uh, Bailey and Gabby just had a baby, so that's new. Um, so you can all text them right now and, uh, and say congrats if you didn't know that. But um, yeah, congrats to them. They're obviously not here. Uh, Mike and Kristen Jackson, would you guys stand up? Say hi. Yeah, they're uh, in the med school. Um, Mike obviously leads our, our music, does a great job. Um, James and Sabrina White, where are you guys at? Way in the back, back there. Why don't you go ahead and stand up so folks can see you. James and Sabrina, just very faithful, also in med school, so thankful for them. Chet Lana Walker, front row here. Yeah, right. So we see who the favorite leaders are by how many people cheer. You didn't cheer at all when I said my name. Just kidding. No, 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 don't do that. Stop it. Stop it. That was a joke. Okay, Chet, Lana, wonderful folks. Chet's in TES. Uh, love having them here. Rogel and Lily. I doubt Rogel is here. Maybe Lily is. Uh, Rogel's been pretty sick, so um, you can pray for him. Um, but they're obviously not here. Uh, Colin and Emily Dingus. They're here tonight. There they are. There they are. Yeah, Colin is also in uh, TES, and uh, love serving alongside him. Anna Catherine, she here? Yes. Sorry, sorry. I got to find him. Yeah. Anna Catherine's serving with us as well. So if you don't know her, meet her. Jojo. His hair gets longer by the hour. <laughs> like Samson. So uh, we love serving alongside Jojo. Jojo is also in our seminary. Isaac Harkness. 
There's Isaac. There he is. Everybody knows Isaac, but always glad to see him. Isaac's also in seminary with us here and a joy to serve with. Uh, Jake Norman. Where's Jake? There he is in the back. Love serving alongside of Jake. Teo Hugh. Where is it? Come on, stand up. There we go. There's Teo. Get to know him. And Hayden Eichert. I didn't see him. Is he a little sick too? Yeah, the plague. So <laughs> Hayden's the guy that's, that's jamming in the electric guitar usually up here. So uh, meet that guy too. These are great folks. And um, again, we set them aside. We're investing in those folks to invest in you. So make sure and avail yourselves of those relationships. All right. Well, tonight I am excited to get back into our study of Philippians. Um, if you're not already there, you can turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And last semester, we really did watch the Lord uh, produce some fruit in our hearts and our lives as we began to understand and apply this letter. And I'm looking forward to and, and praying for the fruit that he's going to produce this semester as we continue our study. We got about through about a chapter and a half last year, and hopefully we'll go faster this semester and finish up the, the letter by the semester. That's my goal. Um, but I'm just excited to see what the Lord's going to do as we lean into his word. But let's just take a minute, because it's been a while, uh, over a month, since we've been in this little book, uh, and try to get our bearings in this study. All right, so obviously, as the name of the book implies, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. Good. Past. Um, Paul planted this church about 10 years ago. Okay, about 10 years earlier, you know, in the time of, of this writing. And that's described in Acts 16. So if you're new, you haven't got our study, just jot that down. Acts 16, you can go read about it. And Paul loved all the saints. That's very clear from his letters but he seemed especially endeared to this group. Probably because they partnered with him in gospel ministry from day one. So from the, kind of from the day this church was planted, the first members were involved in ministry. A woman named Lydia was one of the first converts, and almost immediately after she was converted, she insisted on using her home as a gathering place for Paul and his team as they did evangelism in the city. And pretty quickly, her home became the gathering place for this new assembly. You see that at the end of chapter 16 in Acts. So from day one, Lydia and people that were with her, the ladies with her and her household, they were committed to the mission, and there were already a a good number of brothers and sisters that were in that assembly uh, in a few weeks. So they were committed, and that commitment didn't flame out after Paul left them. Okay, So Paul left... Philippi and went and continued his church planting ministry, but their eagerness and enthusiasm for Paul and love for Paul, that continued on. Several times during his church planting endeavors, uh, the church in Philippi would hear about his trouble, they would hear about some predicament he was in, and this impoverished church would scrape together whatever money they had and they would send it to him to continue his ministry so he could keep preaching the gospel and planting churches. They helped keep him going. And that's obviously endearing, you know, to receive a gift of any kind, but it's doubly endearing when they're poor and they're, they're making, barely able to make ends meet, but then they're, they're sending money on ahead for you. So Paul loved this church, and, and just before he wrote the letter, Paul was arrested, and then he was eventually sent to Rome, and he, he, he's 
sat there in prison kind of at the time of this writing. He sat there with Timothy by his side. He was awaiting a trial, didn't know if he was going to live or die. When the Philippians caught wind of this, they sent him one of the greatest financial gifts yet. Okay? One of the greatest financial gifts to date, and that was to help meet his needs in prison. Because if somebody wasn't helping him, Paul would probably die in prison from starvation uh, and, and, and any other things because they didn't, they didn't have meals provided for them in prison. It's up to his friends to care for him. So the Philippians heard about this and they sent this gift. It was delivered by one of their own church leaders named Epaphroditus. It's kind of a long name. Probably not going to name your kid that, but it, it's uh, one of their church leaders and he risked his own life to get Paul the money. So apparently he got sick along the way, and, uh, but he kept going. And he risked his own life to get Paul the money, and again, just endeared to Paul and Paul to them. But when Epaphroditus came, he apparently also gave Paul an update on the state of the church in Philippi. That would be normal, right? A church leader comes and visits the great apostle in prison, and he kind of unloads on Paul. What's going on? And it wasn't all good. This church had been struggling uh, kind of as of late. Persecution was ramping up in Philippi, and it was um, ramping up in most places in the empire at that time. And this already poor church was really starting to feel it. They may have begun to doubt if they were on the right path, given how much they were suffering. And when they heard that their leader, their founding apostle, was arrested when he was a hostage in Rome for the sake of the gospel... I'm sure that their spirits sank. I mean, how, would yours sink if Pastor Brian or Rich or arrested, right? We didn't know how he was doing. So, how would the gospel be spread? I'm sure that's a question they were asking. How would churches be planted if Paul is in prison? And with morale low, it's easy to become impatient with each other too. It's easy to take offense, and that's what was beginning to happen in Philippi as well. Two of their charter members had apparently had a disagreement, Yodi and Syntyche, two of these women, and they were struggling to reconcile. People in the congregation were starting to grumble and bicker about who was in the right, who was in the wrong. And so Epaphroditus, you know, this church leader, he probably downloaded all that on Paul, and he was seeking some advice, some help, what to do. He's probably looking at Timothy and saying, can you... Send Timothy, you know, can we, can we have some help? So that's a quick sketch of the background, and as you might tell, Paul takes out his pen or his quill, um, and he decides to write them a letter. And he writes this letter for two basic reasons. Okay, First, as we might expect from such a generous gift, he writes to do what? Thank them for the gift, right? He tells them thank you. He naturally wants to express his gratitude for their financial gift and also for their historic partnership in the gospel ministry. And this comes out really clearly in the first part of this letter and then also at the end of the letter, kind of like, a, like two pieces of bread on a sandwich. They kind of bookend the letter, this thanks. But the bulk of the letter, really the meat of this sandwich, okay, it's, it's written to refocus this church on what matters. He wants to refocus them on Christ, on the gospel, and on the mission. 
He does not want to see them get off track. Not this church. I mean, he doesn't want to see any church get off track, but especially not the church in Philippi, the beacon of missions, right? He wants to show them that their circumstances, as hard as they may be, they are not a cause for discouragement. They're not a cause for infighting. These circumstances are given by God and He intends to use them for greater ministry. So He sort of subtly, but not so subtly, uses His own life as an example. He's in prison. But God is multiplying ministry while He's in prison. And He's joyful. And He wants this church to reconcile with each other. Especially these two women. He wants them to refocus on knowing and trusting Christ and to get about joyfully serving Christ until He returns. So, if we could put it really simply, He wants them to be effective in the mission. That's His goal. And if Paul were here today, he would want the same for us. Like the Philippians, it's tempting for us, even right here in Boundless, to get off track. To subtly start living for something or someone other than Christ. It's easy to get wrapped up in your education. It's easy to get wrapped up in a job or your friends, or in my case, raising your kids or doing the next thing in pastoral ministry. It's easy to get wrapped up in these things and forget about Christ and His mission. What should ultimately fuel all those things, right? The education, the friendships, the, all of that is Christ and His mission. We can easily slip into thinking that life is about us getting what we want rather than living for what Christ wants, which is a truly good life. But how do you know? How do you know whether or not you veered? How do you know when you're living life for yourself when you straight off track from what Christ wants? How do you know when you need to course correct? Well, we could point to a number of things, a number of diagnostics, but there's one clear diagnostic that tells us that we've shifted from his mission. One clear indicator that we need to course correct and return to him. So what is it? Well, I'm going to take it from our passage tonight. As you can guess from the title of our message, it's grumbling. Complaining. Bickering. Backbiting. Sour attitudes. As we're going to see, when these things are coming out of our mouths, it means that discontentment is in our hearts. It reveals distrust of our good and sovereign God. And as such, a grumbling church is hindered in the mission. It reveals we're living for something else that we've not gotten we think we deserve. And if we don't recognize the grumbling as sin, and if we don't repent of it, it will destroy our soul. It will render us ineffective in gospel ministry. And it will end in the division of our church. So as convicting as this is, the passage before us tonight is also not just a convicting passage, although it is, but it's also a passage that shines the light to the way out. Paul's going to help us recognize when we're off mission, yes, but he doesn't leave us there. He's also going to tell us how to get back on the path. 
is a passage full of hope, full of incentive for God's children, full of motivation. And what's beautiful about this passage is getting back to the path is not just the absence of complaining, as wonderful as that is. It's also the presence of something else in our lives, and it's the presence of Christ's own joy. So we'll look at this in depth. And and really, in this passage, he gives us two two instructions that's going to guide us into an increasingly, increasingly effective mission. It's going to instruct us and kind of keep us on the mission. And these instructions actually guide us into being more effective as a ministry, effective even as a college ministry, in the mission of Christ. And it's all about kind of coming out of grumbling, right? And, and getting back on the path, not, not falling prey to that. So we're going to look at that in depth tonight. Now, as you can see, I have two instructions. You give a disclaimer on the front end. My first instruction is going to take the entirety of our time. Okay? And then you'll see why when we get to the second instruction. Okay? Because we're going to cover that too, but it's going to be at the very end, and you'll understand why at, at the end. Okay? So just know that I'm pacing myself. And we're not going to go for two hours. We might go for an hour and 15, but we're not going to go for two hours. Okay? You're like, oh, Really? Are you serious? Um, we'll see. Okay. <laughs> First instruction Paul gives us is don't ever grumble like Israel. Okay? Don't ever grumble. And don't ever grumble like Israel. Okay? That's my summary of these verses here. And really, just again for context as you're writing, We're in verse 14, and it's really coming out of, if you remember, our last sermon of the semester last year. Our last sermon was about uh, our sanctification, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. These instructions here in this this paragraph, this following paragraph, is flowing out of that. It's like a specification of that. Here's an example of how you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Here it is. Don't grumble, right? Don't grumble. So, he says, essentially, don't ever grumble like Israel. Look with me in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? That you may be blameless, or that you may become blameless and innocent children of God. Without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ... I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So Paul tells us not to ever grumble or bicker in verse 14. Okay? And he goes on to tell us why in verses 15 and 16. Both are crucial. The, the command and the motivation. Right. So let's take some time to really work through what Paul's telling us to do. The command in verse 14. And then we'll spend some time thinking through the why, the motivations, or the incentives, okay? The command. We see this in verse 14. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And that is a tall order, isn't it? (laughs) 
Just think about that for a second. Do everything without grumbling or complaining. Paul looks us square in the eye and tells us that in everything we do, every word we say, everything we pursue in life, all of our relationships, everything in the church, everything in work, everything at school, everything with your roommates, everything must be done without something. Without grumbling, without disputing. It's like he's saying we need to put a filter on our hearts and filter out all the bad particles, all the grumbling and complaining. That needs to stay back in the filter. You need to throw that away. So everything you do needs to be, the grumbling and complaining needs to be filtered out of that. And he's comprehensive. He doesn't leave any wiggle room. Okay? Everything must be done in this way. And now this is certainly convicting for us, but it would have been really convicting for the Philippians. Since most of this church, by this point, was involved in what we might call like a low-level dispute. It wasn't to the status of like Corinth, because Paul's tone in the Corinthian letter was pretty severe. You know, here it's very warm, so it's a low-level dispute, but it's a dispute. And if it doesn't get dealt with, it's going to be bad. We, we saw this, but two of their key ladies were not getting along. They were grumbling, and they were, that grumbling was leaking out in the congregation. They were likely arguing over who was right. Some took Yodia's side. Others took Syntyche's side. And they likely wanted Paul to weigh in. Who's right? Let me lay it out for you, Paul. And you pick. You tell us who's right. We'll go back. But Paul doesn't do that. Instead of picking sides, he exposes the sinfulness of their murmurings. And he says, it's got to go. There's no room for any of it. It's all got to be filtered out in the congregation. Which means that these ladies and the rest of the church together with them need to humble themselves and reconcile. Paul's not falling for the trap of picking sides here in this debate. But this is easy for, for these kind of things to happen in the church and right here in Boundless, in our relationships. Somebody inconveniences you. Or someone acts rudely toward you. Or somebody makes a joke about you that you don't appreciate. Or someone posts something about you on social media. Somebody excludes you from something for the rest of your friends were invited to. Or maybe someone just rubs you the wrong way and they get on your nerves. They don't necessarily do anything wrong. They're just annoying. They make your life harder. Maybe slightly more awkward. Well, what happens? We grumble, right? Sometimes to ourselves, in our hearts. Christ sees that too. Just ask his disciples. We grumble, sometimes to ourselves, sometimes in our hearts, sometimes to our close friends, sometimes to our spouse. And this kind of speech is sometimes so natural that we don't even realize we're doing it. We just say we're venting, or we're letting off some steam, or we're just being honest, but we're actually grumbling. We're complaining against someone else. But grumbling against other people, that's just one way we do it, isn't it? We kind of grumble all, all kinds of ways, don't we? <laughs> we might complain about how busy we are, how packed our schedule is, or, or the weather. 
or how little sleep we got the night before, or how unreasonable our professor is, or how terrible our job is, or how miserable it is to be single. Right? We complain about all kinds of things. The list just keeps going. But Paul is unfazed. It's got to go. Have you ever stopped to consider what's actually underneath your grumbling? Why do you grumble? What's going on? It's a question you need to write down and think about. Grumbling is a way that we give vent to our discontented hearts. Grumbling is a way that we give vent to our discontented hearts. We've not received what we want. We've not received what we expected that we should get. What we think we deserved. What we believed would make us happy. What we thought might fix our problem or make life a little easier. We've missed out in some way. Or we've been inconvenienced or hurt and we're angry about that. Or we might be anxious. And grumbling is a way that we express that anger or fear. But the scary thing about grumbling, ultimately, okay, is that when we complain about anything, those complaints are leveled at God Himself. When Israel was in the wilderness, they started to grumble about food. They grumbled a lot, actually. A lot of different places. Um, But Exodus 16 is one of those places that this happened. And the text says that they grumbled against Moses and Aaron, their leaders. Typical target of grumbling. (laughs) The text says they grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and here's what they said. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you, Moses and Aaron, you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So they complained, grumbled against Moses and Aaron. But Moses interprets that a little differently. A few verses later, Moses says, Your grumbling is not against us, but against Yahweh. Sure sounded like they were grumbling against you, Moses. Like, how can you say they're grumbling against the Lord? Moses ultimately didn't lead the people out into the wilderness. Moses didn't lead them there. He didn't limit their food supply. He didn't rescue them from Egypt. Yahweh did. Yahweh is the one in control, not Moses. And the same is true for every single one of us tonight. The Lord controls your professor. He governs the weather. 
He is even sovereign over that friend who hurt you. Not to mention the one million other things we might complain about. Nothing is outside God's good control. And for us as believers, nothing happens to us that will not ultimately result in more eternal glory, more joy, more good. Romans 8.28, 2 Corinthians 4.17, lots of other passages we could cite there. So when we complain then, we're leveling an accusation against God. We're implicitly accusing Him of lacking wisdom. We're finding fault with His goodness. We're implying He's not sovereign. So grumbling doesn't just reveal that we're discontent. It also reveals that we don't trust the good and wise governance of our Heavenly Father. It reveals that we believed a lie about His character. It reveals that we're misinterpreting the circumstances that we're in. So let's take a little scenario and tease that out, okay? Let's trace back that grumbling to its root issue. You find yourself grumbling about your professor. He posted a quiz at the last minute. Didn't give you much time to study for it. As a result, you didn't do too great. As a result of that, uh, you dropped a letter grade. As a result of that, your GPA dropped. All right, so it's like, whoa, cascading consequences here. <laughs> and now you're grumbling. Why? Because you felt slighted by your professor. You didn't deserve that lower grade. It's his fault. This isn't good. And it certainly isn't the best thing for you. Maybe even sinful fear kicks in. What if I can't get a job because of my GPA? What if I'm ruined for life? So when you find yourself talking with your friends, you find yourself complaining about your professor, how unorganized he is, how no one likes him, how you'll never take him again. What's going on? Well, you feel slighted because you thought you deserved better and you didn't deserve what you got. Maybe he is in the wrong. Maybe you do need to follow up with the LU administration. I'm not saying don't do that. But what about your grumbling heart? Is that professor in his timing of the exam outside of the Lord's control? It's not. Could he have changed it? Could the Lord have changed that? Yeah, he could have. Could he have helped you score even better on that exam? Yeah, he could have but he chose not to. And he chose that for his good and wise and kind purposes that you have no idea what's going on. Other than the fact that he's promised to bless you. That he's promised that it will turn out for your good. So is your heart contentedly and joyfully trusting in him in this situation with your professor? Not if you're grumbling. Grumbling is ultimately leveling these complaints at the Lord, not at your professor. So Paul says, in everything we do, it should be free of complaining and this bickering 
And that's a tall order. And Paul knows how prone we are in this, in our flesh. So he provides some incredible motivation in the rest of this passage. Okay? So we're going to look at that in the rest of, this, the rest of these verses here. And then at the end of this point, I'm going to come around and we're going to talk practically about how we can put that filter on okay? and, and kind of start filtering this out. But first, let's talk about this motivation. Notice initially that when he says we fight our grumblings by faith, it's for a purpose. Look in verse 15. He says, Do all these things without grumbling and disputing, that, here's the purpose, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. There's our first motivation. We can say it like this. When we work to eliminate grumbling from our hearts, it confirms our identity as the true children of God. I'll give you a second to write that down. If you're like, what? Just hang with me. Okay? When we work to eliminate grumbling from our hearts, it confirms our identity as the true children of God. I think that's what Paul's saying here. And this is a motivator to eliminate grumbling, to work at it. We're going to spend some time, we're going to spend some time here. Okay? It's, important to, it's important to point out what Paul is not saying here. Paul is not saying that the path to becoming God's child is to stop complaining. Right? So, stop complaining and then be God's child. That's how you, that's how you get to be God's child. Is if you just zip it. You know? It's not what he's saying. For Paul, the path to becoming God's child is by trusting Jesus alone. If you've humbled yourself and entrusted yourself to Jesus, you're already God's child. He's adopted you into His family by faith, even if you were the worst grumbler in the, in the world. You've become His child not because of anything you've done or haven't done, but because of what Christ has done in your place. He lived and died for you, and His perfect life has been credited to you. You're part of God's people. You're part of His very family. You're His child by Christ alone. And so that's very clear with Paul. But what is he saying? He's saying that you've got to learn to become in real time, in practice, what you've been given in Christ. So just because in status you're a child, a blameless child, doesn't mean that's what you are in practice. You've got to learn to become blameless. A blameless child, like he's saying here. Just like your father. Your heavenly father is blameless. So he says, we've got to filter out this grumbling, and the more you do, the more you repent, the more you'll actualize your identity, who you are, in practice. It's not automatic. Okay? Your salvation doesn't mean you just stop, stop grumbling. It gives you new capacity, new power, but it's not automatic. You've got to work at not grumbling, and you've got to work at cultivating this contented heart. Even Paul had to learn contentment in every situation. He says that over in chapter 4. But he did learn it, and he said he learned it in every situation. So it is possible. And as you do, you're going to become more and more innocent, more and more blameless. You'll take on the family resemblance. Your elder brother, Jesus, is not a grumbler. And that will confirm that you really are a child of God, that He really is your brother. Because as we saw at the end of last semester, God 
is powerfully at work in his children, right? Work out your salvation. Why? For God is at work. God is powerfully at work in his children to make them like his son. Verse 13 of chapter 2. Now this is extremely encouraging. It's extremely encouraging in itself as we're thinking about this because we already have what we need to stop grumbling. But it gets even more encouraging when we realize that Paul is making a comparison here between Israel of old and the church today. You're saying, how so? When Paul calls us children without blemish, you see that? And then he says that we live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. He's taking his language from Deuteronomy 32. I'm going to throw this up there so you can see the parallel. Deuteronomy 32.5. You can see the underlines. And as you're reading that, you're probably thinking, huh, this sounds like a little bit different of a context. Moses writes in Deuteronomy 32.5 of Israel, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They, that's Israel, are a crooked and twisted generation. And then Philippians, you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, that's the opposite of what Israel was, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So some interesting dynamics are at play here. To understand what Paul's doing, we've got to take a step back. And I mean way back. Like back to Genesis 1. Okay? If you remember back to the beginning, it was always God's plan to use people to extend His rule. Remember that with Adam and Eve? Dominion? It started there, and when they failed, they plunged our entire race into sin and death. It's like God's purpose for creation. is like, what? How? How's he going to do this now? Because his key people are in rebellion. But God wasn't finished. He promised to reverse this curse to bring blessing through one of Eve's children. The promise, that descendant line, continued to Noah. Then it continued to Abraham. And finally to the nation of Israel as a whole. That's a direct line okay, of this promise. They were to be God's son, Israel this sort of second Adam, if you will, as a nation. They were to be His children, and as such, they were to be a light to the nations as they trusted Him and reflected Yahweh to the people around them. But from day one, they failed as a nation. And they kept failing. In the wilderness, they were nothing but grumblers and idolaters. Moses tells us again and again in Deuteronomy that that's all they've done. It's so bad that in Deuteronomy 32, this chapter we're looking at, the Lord tells Moses to teach Israel a song, and this is not a song you want to be, to be about you. Okay? This song is going to remind them of how they rejected the Lord throughout their whole history. It's going to remind them, it's going to teach them in generations to come that when the covenant curses come on the nation because of their idolatry, this is why. Because you've, all you've done is forsake the Lord and worship idols. 
This is the reason that God's going to judge them in the future. And in verse 5, in our verse, the Lord recounts their corruption and how the Lord, in a sense, like disowned them from being children because of their blemish and their grumblings, their idolatries. In fact, he calls them a crooked and twisted generation. Well, long story short, okay, this is Deuteronomy, as they're entering into the promised land. It's pretty early in their history. This is kind of predicted, okay, this is going to happen. The history of Israel isn't any better, right? They don't, they don't get any better after this point in Deuteronomy. There's some highlights, yes. You know, Joshua, David, points of Solomon's reign. But they, they trend in a downward direction. They keep sinning, and eventually God judges them like He predicts in Deuteronomy. But God's not through just because they failed. He promises His people that He will send a Messiah, someone who will represent Israel, from Israel itself. They will be, this person will be the true and blameless Israelite. And He will restore the nation. He will bring a new covenant. He will circumcise their hearts to make them obedient. Now again, skipping over a lot, but Jesus of Nazareth does this in His life, death, and resurrection. And in Acts 2, the first Jews repent. And guess how Luke describes it? He says they were cut to the heart. They received the heart circumcision. They're the first installment of this restoration of Israel. But the gospel continues to spread, not just to Jews, it does, but it also spreads out to Gentiles, just like Isaiah predicted. Christ cleanses our hearts too through faith, and He makes us part of His children as we enter into that restoration as well. Pretty sweet. So what's Paul doing here in our passage? Paul is telling us as the new covenant people, as those who are part of this restoration, as those who have had our hearts circumcised, that this should motivate us to stop grumbling. We are not like Israel under the Old Covenant. We have new hearts and the power of the Holy Spirit. We should cease our grumbling then and be different. We are not a twisted and crooked generation like Israel was then. And like every unbeliever, including the unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles, are today. We, of all peoples of the earth, have been restored from that state. From a state of constant grumbling and unbelief and idolatry. To a state of faith. And that should incentivize us to leave all that behind. You follow me? We have the capacity to believe God. We have the power through the Spirit to repent of our grumblings and to actually live out our lives as true children of God, never to be disowned. We're not blemished because we're in Christ. What a privilege and what a responsibility and a motivation to leave that grumbling in the rearview mirror. Now, it's important that we lay hold of this profound privilege as a motivator to work hard in our heart attitudes. 
The Lord Himself walks among us. He examines our hearts. Remember Paul said earlier, just, he's like, obey, not in my presence only, but much more, with fear and trembling. Because the one who's working among you is God. Meaning, God's with you. He's dwelling among you. Just like He was in the Holy of Holies in the, ta- in the tabernacle in the temple, He's with His church. The Lord's walking among us. He examines our hearts and He wants His new covenant people to leave grumbling behind. And he's equipping us to do that very thing through his power. So that's a huge motivator. Um, But that's not all. Paul gives us another one. He says as we learn to cease our grumbling, it enhances our ministry to others. And that's where I'm drawing this language of of instructions that make us effective in mission there in 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 that heading there. If we leave our grumbling behind, it will enhance our ministry to others. He goes there in verse 15. In the last half of this, he says this, he talks about this twisted generation, and then he says, Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast or holding forth to the word of life. Or holding fast, excuse me. Should be translated like this. Okay, I'll tell you why. Holding forth the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul's point here builds on the last thing he just said. As we become more blameless as a church, meaning we complain less, we become like a star in the night sky that's glowing brighter and brighter. And it's imagery that he's taking from Daniel 12 where Daniel predicts that God's people, after their restoration and after their resurrection from the dead, will shine like the stars of heaven. And they'll turn many to righteousness. We don't have time to go there tonight, but I'm happy to talk with you about it later if you're interested. Very interesting text here. But Paul's making the point, here's the point, that because we're united to Christ, that that shining that Daniel predicted in the resurrection, that shining is already kind of breaking in right now through the resurrection life that we've experienced in Christ. We're united to Him in His resurrection. We've been resurrected spiritually and our lives are beginning to reflect that resurrection life now. We're shining now in part and we're really going to shine in the resurrection, the physical resurrection from the dead when Christ returns and we're made perfect. But the shining is kind of already broken in ahead of time into this, this old creation through His church. And we're shining brighter and brighter as we put away complaining. As we increase in Christ's likeness. So that's true. But notice that something else is happening in verse 16. He says we're shining bright like the stars as we hold to the word of life. Now, Like I said, most of your translations will probably have holding fast to the word of life. Like we're kind of holding on to it. And that's legitimate, talking kind of about our perseverance. We're going to persevere in the gospel. Like we're holding on to it. That's a good reading. But it could also be translated as holding forth the word of life. Um, Like you're holding something out to someone else. And the context alone determines what which, which way this should go. It, goes, it could go either way. It's, it's used in both contexts throughout the literature that we have. 
or both ways, both domains. So the context itself de determines which one it is, and I think Philippians as a letter, the whole reading of Philippians supports this evangelistic kind of idea, this mission kind of idea, this holding forth the word of life, and we could talk about that more. But the imagery is this, kind of imagine a marathon runner, and he's, he's parched, he's running his marathon, and then someone is on the sidelines, and he's holding out a cup of water to this guy, or a bottle of water, and he's running by, and he's grabbing that water. So that holding forth is, here you go, you know, that guy's in need, he needs water, I'm holding it out there to him. That's the idea. Holding some, something out to someone else. And here, Paul is saying that we shine bright as we hold out the gospel, the word that gives life to others around us. He's talking about our ministry to others. Ministry in evangelism especially, but also ministry as we build each other up with that gospel, with the word of life that continues to give us life here in the church. So I just I cover it all. It enhances our ministry to others as we stop complaining. Let's put it all together. Paul's saying we should do everything without grumbling. Why? So that we'll be blameless children, and as such, this will make our ministry more effective. We'll shine more brightly. So think about that. Who would you rather listen to? Someone who says they believe in Christ, but is griping all the time about their life? Or someone who radiates that faith through contentment and joy, even in their trials? Which one's more compelling? Second one. That person's ministry is more powerful. And the implication is our outreach, our ministry to others, will be much more powerful, much more effective, the more we repent of our complaining and grumbling. Why? Because we're living what we preach to others. Because when we don't grumble, it actually shows we actually do trust Jesus. We're saying that God's in control of everything and that He's working all things for good. And then when that coworker slanders you in the workplace, you actually believe it. And you don't grumble about it. You believe that God's working for your good in that. And the power in that is undeniable. When you open your mouth in that same workplace and then you talk about Christ, you talk about His power to forgive, His power to transform His people, it's backed up by a life that's radiating that power. Not perfectly, but it's there. And it is undeniable. And the ones that God is drawing are going to say, can you tell me more about that? And the ones that He's not, they're going to say, how dare you? You know? And they're going to get angry. It's God's, it's God's method. It's His way of drawing His elect and repelling those that are hardening their hearts. And Paul intends this to motivate us. To motivate us to work hard at our attitudes. Think about how life-giving that is. Like it's, Nothing escapes the look of Christ and His desire to see you transformed like in the mundane, right? In those little grumblings. And nothing can be more glorious that as you stop grumbling, He's promising to work. He's promising to make your ministry effective. So work hard to filter out the moaning and the griping and the unbelief that's fueling all that stuff. Because other souls hang in the balance. That's a huge motivator. Okay? There's another one. There's the last one that we're going to look at, this final mo motivator in the passage here. As we could say it like this, this was we're, as we're stopping our griping and we're trusting the Lord, that it results in, in reward. 
Verse 16, end of verse 16. He says, we're doing all this so that, here's the goal, in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now that's interesting. What's he saying? He's saying that his eternal reward as an apostle is kind of bound up in the church's obedience in this area. And they're grumbling or not grumbling. That is staggering. Paul is not saying he's going to lose his salvation if this church devolves into unrepentant grumblers. Okay? That's not what he's saying. But he is saying, though, that from a human standpoint, all his work he put into them would be in vain. His evangelism, his suffering, his late nights of counseling, his long days of preaching and training, his hours of investing in the elders and appointing them in the church, all of that is at risk if they keep grumbling. But Paul is confident that they won't. He's confident that his labor won't be in vain. That he hasn't run in vain. He's confident that they will repent because he knows that God is at work in them, in the faithful. And he's confident that his work won't be in vain. He's confident that it will result in reward on that final day. And that, he says that, to motivate those Philippians to stop grumbling. And it's meant to motivate us too. Do you realize that many people have labored in your life to bring you to the point that you are today? Just think about that. And specifically, here in this church, many are laboring to present you mature in Jesus. Especially your pastors and your disciples. The more you filter out grumbling, the more you become like Christ, the more you stay on mission, the more you confirm that our work is not in vain. that our work as pastors will result in reward on that final day. So the next time you're tempted to complain, <laughs> think about that. Think something like, hey, whoa, I'm about to scrumble right now. But if I don't, and I like capture that, and I renew my mind, and I learn cultivate contentment in this moment? That I'm assuring that Rich's work in my life is not in vain. And that Rich will get rewarded on that final day for my obedience. It's a crazy thought. But Paul tells us that so that we will be incentivized not to complain. Right? So, let's just wrap up. We're probably way out of time. <clears throat> I haven't even been tracking it. Let's just wrap up here on thinking through how to filter out this complaining. If it's that big a deal, right, uh, Paul's very serious about this and wants to make sure that the church is thinking through this and not complaining and grumbling against each other and against their circumstances because ultimately against the Lord, then we need to think carefully about how to filter this out. And again, it's not rocket science. It's not going to be anything different than our growing up series, what we learned there, but let's just think about it carefully together. How do we do this? Well, first, you've got to recognize that it's happening. Okay? You're not going to filter it out if you don't even see it. So you need to become sort of self-aware of when the grumbling is happening. 
So again, this is where your friends can be helpful um, if you invite them in on it. Uh, again, if your friends here, just a word of wisdom here, treat others the way you want to be treated. Okay. Um, so just be gracious and kind, uh, but recognize it's happening. We can help each other. Be like, hey, are you? How's your heart doing with that? You know, just help each other begin to kind of draw awareness to the fact that this is happening in grace, knowing that I'm the greatest sinner. I grumble all the time. I need help, just like you need help. So we need to be humble, okay, in this. But we've got to recognize that it's happening. Number one, I'm grumbling. And then we've got to remember what it reveals, okay? So that moment that it's happening, and I've identified, okay, wow, this is a real area for me that I'm tempted to grumble in. And I've got kind of this habitual pattern of, of grumbling. I've got to remember what this reveals in this moment. It's not just like, I didn't get what I wanted. It's actually distrust in God. And kind of get to the root issue. And if you need help doing that, that's where we come in as the church and discipling and all that stuff. So we can try to help you think through that. Then reorient to God. Okay? Because He sees what's going on in your heart. And even though He loves you dearly in Christ and His love doesn't change, He's not pleased. Okay? So we have to reorient to Him. Meaning we've got to repent. We have to confess that, man, I've been grumbling. And I've not been trusting you, Lord, in this area. Will you forgive me? And boom, instant. I mean, he's, he wants to forgive you more than you want forgiveness. So reorient to him, confess, and begin that mind renewal process. of saying, okay, God, what have you promised in this area? What, what can I cling to? That, okay, you, you work all things for good. That's a great verse, okay? You work all things for good. Even this thing I would have never planned for myself. So you're renewing your mind. You're getting that promise back in view. God's coming back into the picture here because you've forgotten him, but now he's back in the picture. You're reorienting to him, you're renewing your mind. And then if this is necessary, you know, if you've been, if, if, it's, if your grumbling has, has resulted like in this church of, with disputes, right, with others, because that's where it will lead to um, if you don't get it. If it's, if it's gone there, then you need to do what Paul was saying here. You need to humble yourself and go to that person and if we need to, we can help you with that. But ideally, you do it on your own and humble yourself and confess. Hey, I've, I've uh, really been disputing with you and arguing with you and being just really caustic. Like, will you forgive me? That's been sin. Um, I love you. I want to be restored in relationship. So reconcile with others if necessary after you've, after you've reconciled with the Lord. And then leading to our final fifth, our fifth way to filter this out and second instruction in our text uh, Choose to rejoice in what God's doing. That's where this text ends. It doesn't just end with a filtering out of complaining. It ends actively with rejoicing in what God is doing. Because if God really is working this trial or whatever it is that you're complaining about, if he really is working that for your good, then that's something to rejoice in. Not the pain, but the fruit of what he's producing. So look with me here quickly at the end. Uh, did you guys get, get all that? Yeah, great. Um, look here at the end. Choose to rejoice like Paul. This is where he ends this passage. And it's really the other side of the coin. Not grumbling is the same thing as rejoicing. Or you might say there's a connection between the two. To refuse to grumble and to trust the Lord opens the portals of joy. 
of contented joy. So look with me just real quick. We're going to talk a lot more about joy in weeks to come, so I'm just going to be brief. He says in verse 17, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, essentially saying, even if I'm going to die, okay? That's what he's essentially saying. Even if that's going to happen, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He's calling this church back to joy. And man, we're going to learn a lot about that because we rejoice in the Lord always. Which means there's a always in your life a capacity for joy. Always. Christ is always able to help you rejoice. There's always hope. There's always a reason to, to be glad in Christ. It doesn't mean we're just walking around with a smile on our face all the time because we can, we can, be, we can rejoice in, in, in sorrow. But joy is the antidote here. Choosing to rejoice like Paul. And what we have to do in these moments, I'm convinced, is we have to trace out in those areas we're tempted to complain, not only do we have to renew our perspective on what's happening in that, that moment, God's working in me, but we have to trace out the ways that He's doing that. The fruit we're able to see. Because of this thing, I'm, I'm growing in these ways. And I'm going to choose to rejoice in that. And actively praise God in your prayer life. Magnify God to others because of what He's doing in your life, even if your heart doesn't feel it. Because you're choosing to rejoice like Paul is choosing to rejoice. Do you think Paul wanted to rejoice sitting there in a maggot-filled prison? Probably not. But he chose to because of the truth that was governing his life, knowing that to live is Christ and to die is gain. So what a word, huh? Our complaining reveals a lot about us, but God is working in us. He is patient. He desires to lead us out of this more than we desire to get out of it. And He desires that to, so that we will shine like the stars that Daniel predicted in Daniel 12. As we become a college ministry that complains less and less because we rejoice in Christ more and more. Guess what's going to continue to happen? The Lord is going to use us, like He says in Daniel 12, to turn many people to righteousness. To hold forth the Gospel. To see people saved and then raised up and sent to the nations. He's going to do all that through our church and even through our college ministry as we stop grumbling in faith. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are always so um, grateful, humbled at how well you shepherd us through your word. Your spirit inspired these, these men to write these letters and gospels and prophecies also that you could care for your people's needs. You could help us see you could produce joy, help us to progress in the faith. Lead us to you and be with you forever. So we are thankful uh, for your word. We're thankful we get to sing it. We're thankful that we get to study it. We're thankful that we get to meditate and, and have it change our lives. We're thankful we get to talk about it together now uh, in the next little while. 
And we pray, Lord, that your spirit would just be pleased to help us stop complaining. Father, I know I do. There are so many times I don't even see it, and yet you're patient and kind and gracious, and you desire to expose this so that we can really get after it in our lives in faith and joy, knowing that um, you're going to produce fruit, more fruit, uh, changing people's lives through us and uh, making us effective for the mission. So we pray you do that, and uh, we'll give you thanks when you do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys.